When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We're not focused singly, solely, principally on defense and security. We're not defined by 100 years of mateship alone. We're defined by what we can do together in a changing world. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights, and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Rory Metcalf. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I pay respects to their elders. Today, I'm joined by Arthur Sinodinus, who is, among many other things, and we'll go a little bit into into our guest's career in a moment, um, of course, a former Australian ambassador to the United States of America. Arthur, welcome to the podcast. Rory, great to be with you and good to have seen you recently in Canberra. So we're recording this in early October 2023 and we're recording this in, in anticipation of the uh, the visit by the Australian Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, to Washington uh, later this month, I think 23 to 26 October. There's a lot we can talk about in this conversation and it's going to revolve around the United States, uh, the future of the United States as an ally for Australia and really as a comprehensive partner across so many other uh, facets of our society and economy. Arthur, you've got, I think, deep background, if I can say, on this topic. And I think your time uh, recently as ambassador, I think uh, ending your term in March of this year, um, handing the reins over to Kevin Rudd. Uh, But of course, prior to that, your career in Australian government and Australian politics, whether it's as Cabinet Secretary, uh, whether it's going back to your time as Chief of Staff to Prime Minister John Howard, you've uh, you've seen the United States up close. And I guess what I would be really interested in sharing with our listeners on the podcast today is, is your thoughts about the not only the priorities for the Prime Minister's visit shortly, but also the the broader context of the relationship with the United States, what the future of the United States looks like in the Indo-Pacific and, and, and the world, really. So if I can start just with a sense of what you think the Australian Prime Minister can expect to achieve on this forthcoming visit uh, in October. Thank, thanks, Rory. Um, well, of course, this visit... Um, was in part an outcome of the cancellation of the Quad Leaders Meeting in Australia. Um, there was a side meeting in in Japan, um, in the margins of the G7, where the Prime Minister and and and, and President Biden sat down and uh, 
And, uh, of course, the president apologised for the fact that he couldn't come to Australia for the quad leaders meeting. Uh, and, uh, and at that stage, it was offered that there would be a state visit. This will be the third state visit. Um, France has had one. India has had one. Uh, it's Australia's turn. And I think it's very appropriate Australia have a state visit. Uh, the relationship is is obviously historically close, but I don't think it's ever been closer. I think in part geostrategic circumstances are bringing us ever more closely together. This is strongly typified on the defence and security side, uh, but it's happening in other ways as well. And one of the things I, I sort of noticed when I was ambassador was the way in which geostrategic circumstances were increasingly impacting on economics and business. And the and the the overlay of economics and national security um, becoming very strong. And what this is doing is creating new policies, um, new supply chains, and with it new opportunities. And I think we'll see that on display during the visit. Uh, there's discussion of putting more meat on the bones of the clean energy and climate compact that was announced uh, by the President and uh, the Prime Minister their, at their previous meeting. Uh, and, and this would be to give more uh, colour to what they're going to do together to cooperate in the space of critical minerals, on clean energy technology, uh, and on climate more broadly. Uh, and uh, the talk is that Madeleine King, the Resources Minister, will be visiting here uh, to help, uh, I think, uh, do some of the groundwork on on this whole pact. Um, and so I think that would be a major feature. Uh, the Prime Minister made it clear when he first got the job and he went uh, very quickly to Tokyo for, for another quad leaders mm. meeting that um, and he was and he was to be commended for doing that so quickly. It, it really showed our strong foreign policy credentials and the continuity between the previous government and this government. Um, but they discussed there. Uh, and the Prime Minister announced that he wanted climate to be a third pillar of the relationship. And, of course, this was an area, as you know, Rory, under the previous government where there had been bigger differences between Australia and the US. And uh, what uh, this government has done in Australia is uh, put us more on the same page as the US, which, of course, as you know, is investing heavily in the clean energy space, principally through the Inflation Reduction Act. So I think that we can see that as a major point of discussion. Issues of space and technology may also be raised in that context. Quantum is an area where we're looking to do more. There's a technology safeguards agreement in the space sector that uh, uh, hopefully gets signed off. Uh, all of that, I think, will go to a narrative that in terms of the bilateral relationship, that we're not focused singly, solely, principally on defence and security. We're not defined by 100 years of mateship alone, we're defined by what we can do together in a changing world. And the idea is to show the opportunities that that is opening up for us to work more closely together in the economic space and the climate space. On the economic side, as you know, we're working together to make the Indo-Pacific economic framework, which is President Biden's signature trade policy in the Asia-Pacific, a reality. Um, the supply chain pillar has already uh, been largely signed off on, uh, and that's a wonderful way to engage the countries of the region. And, and of course, the priority for us has been in recent years not just the defence and security presence of the US in the region, but the way in which 
it can have a stronger economic presence. We had hoped that would be by joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is uh, very much a US creation. That was not to be. The politics of the US on trade, on market access is still pretty toxic, but they are taking other measures. But So there, there'll be a lot to talk about both bilaterally in terms of what we do together, but there will be minilateral and multilateral dimensions to their discussions because we are both very active in the region and, of course, in the world in how we seek to, um, for want of a better term, if you like, help to underwrite, underpin and support the global rules-based order. There's there's a lot there, and I want to, I want to uh, zoom in on a couple of those topics in a little bit more depth in a moment. But first, I'd note that um, your own vantage point on this, Arthur, I mean, having uh, recently been ambassador, and now, of course, I understand as as uh, partner and chair of the Australia Practice for Asia Group, but also as a uh, a distinguished uh, advisor here at the National Security College, you take a uh, a deep and ongoing interest and, of course, um, spend, I think, uh, a large amount of your time based in the United States. So you're seeing you're seeing this up close. I do want to ask you a few of the uh, thorny questions about uh, the really the stability of decision-making in the United States, the reliability of the United States for Australia going forward, because you read – uh, you read a lot of headlines at the moment about uh, the, the week of this conversation, the situation with the uh, the fate of the uh, the speaker in the U.S. Congress, the um, uh, sort of you know the the, the rather uh, shock uh, sort of uh, removal of the um, the Republican speaker and the the split within the Republican Party over uh, over the next speaker, the question of whether that leads to Paralysis in, uh, in decision making and frankly paralysis in the US budget. Uh, headlines suggesting that Congress is still not uh, entirely lined up on, on AUKUS. And of course, the question of what happens after the next election in the United States, the next presidential election. So I, I just want to wind back a moment and say what, from your vantage point, how do you read the, um, the combination of those factors? in assessing uh, how much confidence an Australian government can have across this very ambitious agenda that you've just outlined? I think the first point to make is that um, if there's one issue that um, both sides of the aisle largely agree on in terms of foreign policy, it's about the role of the US in the Indo-Pacific. Now, there'll be differences of emphasis differences perhaps around what is the burden sharing that should go with that, but around the issues of competing, particularly with China, um, in the tech space, um, how to work with allies and partners, there's a lot of commonality. Um, And I think whether there's a change of administration or this administration going forward, I think that focus on the Indo-Pacific will continue. Um, there are good reasons why you ask the questions that you ask because there is a lot of political instability here at the moment. It's not uh, fatal. It's it's not the end of democracy as we know it in the US. Um, this democracy, I observed this in 2020 when we went through the COVID election uh, here in the US and, and we saw how um, uh, that played out. The, the institutions held. They held very strongly and they will hold through this period. 
and they hold because it is an open society. It has that great strength of being an open society. And like Australia, when you're open, all the pressures, all the issues come to the surface. There's transparency and they get resolved in the great clashes that we see. Um, that's not to say there aren't serious issues going on. But my point is open societies have a strength which people underestimate when they see the instability. In the case of the United States, people thought the last midterm elections would be a washout. There'd be a Republican tsunami. And other issues came to the fore and other voting blocs came forward motivated by issues. In some cases, uh, it was young people, particularly young women, motivated by what had happened around abortion rights. Uh, but other people came forward who were wanting to vote about the future rather than the past. They didn't want the midterms to be a referendum on whether the 2020 presidential election was stolen or not. But what I'm saying is you, you, you can't actually count on the idea that there's a linear explanation of this that goes from all this instability is going on, therefore the democracy is in crisis, therefore it's the... That's not how it is. Um, but that said... There's no doubt that for America's allies and partners, they do question what is going on. For example, now we're going to have to wait at least a week for a new speaker, if not more. We're coming up to the November 17 deadline for the, when a shutdown could again occur. Um, normally, the legislation that gets through every year is the National Defence Authorisation Act. For Australia, that would include elements about, you know, more information sharing and tech transfer around AUKUS. We clearly don't want that held up. Normally that gets done either by December or January at the latest. So there's a lot riding for us on this Congress uh, getting its act together, getting a new speaker and getting on with the legislative agenda because all business has been suspended this week while they work out a new speaker. In Europe, uh, allies and partners in the region do have to think about the implications of a change. Does it mean, for example, that if Donald Trump were returned, they have to be more self-sufficient, more self-reliant? We're already seeing President Macron in France talk along those lines. NATO will be thinking about, well, what is plan B? Clearly, in the case of Ukraine, there may well be a change of policy. Um, so th these are all reasonable things to think about and speculate about. Um, but what I'm saying about the Asia-Pacific is around issues to do, particularly with China, there is a lot of consensus in the, in the Congress and between the parties and in the, in the uh, Congress where we have the House Select Committee on China, which is chaired by Mike Gallagher, who also co-chairs the Friends of Australia Caucus. They're doing a lot of work around uh, how how America engages with China, including on the technology front. And a lot of that work is bipartisan. Um, and so really, like all these things, there are swings and roundabouts. There's no doubt that President Biden has been doing his best this year to engage in a dialogue with President Xi. At the moment, the White House are telling people privately that uh, they believe President Xi will turn up to the APEC meeting which could then provide the venue for a bilateral meeting. And that's, that's in uh, San Francisco, right? That's in mid-November. San Francisco in mid-November. Um, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, was in Malta with Wang Yi, the, the reinstated foreign minister. That was a bit of a surprise to people, but that was a good conversation. There are now expectations that Wang Yi and others will visit here in, in the preparation for a visit by Xi. 
there have been a lot of question marks lately about what Xi is up to because he didn't turn up to either the East Asia Summit or to uh, the G20 in, in Delhi. Mm. Some people thought he was distracted by domestic concerns. Others thought he didn't want to give India a bit of a, a win with the G20. But a lot of people were surprised he didn't go to the East Asia Summit, particularly when, as President Biden was not going. Um, but President Biden said to Prime Minister Albanese in San Diego in March that he was keen to get a dialogue going. Um, he believes a dialogue is important to put some sort of bottom to the relationship, um, particularly around military-to-military military matters. US-China. Yeah, yeah US-China because there's a lot of stuff that's going on in that regard. And, uh, and so from the American perspective, um, they're very keen that the, the dialogue continue. And, of course, we are very keen to see that happen as well. So if we can uh, just look at the, I guess, the question of bipartisanship that you've mentioned uh, already is in the United States, that strong bipartisanship for presence and engagement in the Indo-Pacific, for competing with China and really seeking with allies and partners to prevent uh, Chinese dominance of this of this region, but competing more broadly. What about bipartisanship on both sides. I mean, you you served as uh, ambassador during the uh, the transition from Trump to Biden. Uh, so I guess you've seen what it's like. Uh, and also, of course, you served as ambassador at a time where, where there was a change of government here in Australia from uh, the Morrison government to the Albanese Labor government. So you've seen bipartisanship in action on both sides. Um, how solid is that from an Australian perspective, do you think? Uh, look, I, I think it is strong. Um, traditionally, what's happened when Labor governments have come into power, is they've made a real effort to um, to show their commitment to the US alliance. It, it's a way of, if you like, insulating against attacks from the right about who is stronger on national security. Um, it, look, I, I, I observe what happens in Australia. I know on AUKUS there have been some questions uh, in parts of the community, including parts of the left, about the cost and about uh, the nuclear aspects of this. But the Prime Minister and senior ministers, Penny Wong, Richard Miles, have been very strong in affirming the importance of that. And, and I think you can expect that going forward, uh, that bipartisanship to continue. From my perspective, it was actually very neat and symmetric, symmetrical in a way that we had a coalition government proposing AUKUS and a Labor government consummating the deal. And I think that really, and when I observed Richard Miles in Washington when he came over after the election as Defence Minister, he made very clearly, he made very clear the commitment he had to getting AUKUS done. And he made clear there was a social licence to getting AUKUS done. It was around issues like what we do to stem nuclear non-proliferation uh, and so forth. And, and Jake Sullivan said to him, well, this is the same with us. The president's been very clear from his time in the Senate, nuclear non-proliferation is a big issue for mm. him. So they both realised there's a social licence in these things. And I think the Americans were very clear from the beginning with the Morrison government that, you know, there had to be bipartisanship around this. And I think bipartisanship has occurred. Um, what's happened under this government is that while they've thawed the relationship with China, 
to try and get a dialogue going in the way that the US and Japan and others have a dialogue, but they have not shifted strategic settings. And if anything, they've strengthened them mm. as time goes on. It's been quite interesting to watch that. One of the uh, comments that's made on the relationship with the United States, and again, and particularly from some voices on the left, is, is the argument that really it's embedded in um, in sentiment. It's embedded in, I think, as you mentioned, you know, there was a, a slogan of a hundred years of mateship that's been used um, to 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 promote the partnership, but that it's been embedded more in sentiment than in a practical interest based sense of of what we want to achieve into into the future. Um, I'd be really interested in your take on that because. Sentiment does play a role. I mean, the people-to-people relationship plays a role, and yet that has to be balanced with interest. So, how would you how would you put that mix in your um, perspective? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the sentiment, the people-to-people links, the historical links, they all go. To the fact that we 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 share a number of values in common. We see the world in similar ways as as liberal democratic societies. And we both have a stake in a global rules-based order, which is sort of along the lines of the one that we've seen underwrite the peace and prosperity of the world, essentially, since the end of World War II. And that's something Australians have always been prepared to fight for and stand up for. And, uh, you know, some people say, oh, we unquestionably follow the United States. Uh, I don't think that's actually the case. I think it's based on a clear assessment of our national interest. And our national interest is to work with allies and partners to promote the sort of global rules-based order that we have in the world today. For us to be, for example, um, an independent power, a non-aligned power, if you like, would not mean that we get rid of weapons and everything else. In fact, if anything, it would be the reverse. We'd have a lot more security and defence stuff we'd have to do for ourselves because we'd be in a world where we are no longer aligned with one group or the other, unless that argument is really an argument for accommodating China and saying, well, you will rise, the West will decline, we will accommodate your rise by essentially neutralising our foreign policy or maybe even contracting out our security and defence policies in a way that is accommodating of your interests. Well, that's not the sort of world we want. And on that that question of rise and decline, I mean, we've already talked a bit about the uh, the instability that that we're currently seeing in the U.S. system. Um, there's often been instability in the United States. Of course, one of the big narratives that we hear coming out of China, of course, is that uh, the U.S. is declining, China is rising, China effectively will um, will will map the future here here in the Indo Pacific, and therefore small and middle powers have to get have to get with the program. Um, but from your vantage point, including looking at the US economy, looking at innovation, looking at technology, looking at population, how would you weigh that question of relative decline of the United States? It, it was inevitable with the rise of China that there would be changes in the relative shares of income and assets around the world. But what's been interesting about the United States is that it continues to maintain a technological lead. It continues to define the productivity frontier in many ways. And my three years here uh, sort of, you know, gave me a chance to observe up close the dynamism and the appetite for risk that the US has. The economy here operates almost independently of the of the political process. And, and the way that the industry sector 
academia, research institutes and others all and government work together in terms of R&D and technology uh, is, is a terrific example other countries, you know, should try and emulate. So I think in economic terms, the US has a lot going for it. Uh, I think China's prospects are still good, but there's a major caveat, and that is they do face some headwinds now and they have policy choices they have to make. And if they kick the can down the road, the problem they will face is that they could, yeah, their demography could catch up with them. Uh, and they need, in other words, to become more and more productive over time because their demography, like the demography of a lot of societies, modern societies, is a demography of ageing. They need to become more productive. And that means actually unleashing the animal spirits of the private sector. It means more dynamism and innovation. And, yes, they're investing a lot in high-tech industries. There's no doubt about that. But um, that dynamism, if they keep clamping down the private sector, will be blunted. So there's great prospects for China because people say, what is the next China? And they talk about some other countries. But, in fact, some people also think the next China is the great rural hinterland of China and the opportunities there. But my point is I don't think they'll be properly realised unless the sort of market forces, animal spirits that we see in the West are fully unleashed and there are question marks around that. We'll be right back. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In this disrupted world, Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. So going back to the three pillars that you mentioned for the uh, the relationship with the United States and the PM's visit, uh, defence and security, economic cooperation and really uh, climate uh, and the clean technology and energy transition. Um, let's look at those each in turn, but I just want to start with a question uh, about the connection, uh, the intersection among the three, because on the one hand, and I think you know, a few would argue with you that the uh, the U.S. economy has this this um, vitality removed from the um, the government political process. That also makes it difficult for the United States government to mobilise and harness the economy for national strategic purposes for that uh, that full spectrum competition with China that we've been talking about. Uh, and here in Australia, a lot of the commentary tends to focus on the trade relationship rather than. Uh, investment, uh, technology, uh, those areas where, in fact, there's, there, are, there are deeper connections. It'd be interesting to get a sense from you on how effective the US is being 
at um, at geoeconomics, at actually drawing on the strengths of the economy and the private sector for national resilience, including the uh, the competition with China. Yeah, it's it's a good question because I think they've embraced geoeconomics. They've embraced industry policy for national security purposes in a way that you wouldn't have envisaged a few years ago. So if you look at some of the major pieces of legislation like the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, $50 billion in the CHIPS Act, $360, 370000000000 billion in the Inflation Reduction Act and ancillary spending, all of this aimed at improving the competitiveness and the technological edge of the U.S., um, so the U.S. is using its spending, its tax credits, its subsidies um, to develop new industries, uh, underwrite technological development. I'm a member of the Quad Investor Network. That is looking at how we marshal private capital to supplement public capital in uh, the development and diffusion of critical and emerging technologies. These are the foundational technologies of the future like AI, machine learning, quantum semiconductors, you go through the list. Um, So I think they have embraced industry policy. There's no doubt about that. And that has had major convulsions around the world. The EU are scrambling to keep up. Japan and Korea have had to negotiate special arrangements with the Americans so that, um, and, and we, Australia has raised with the US the fact that some of these programs are so big, there's a risk that they attract capital and, and people and projects into the US and out of some of these other economies, including ours. Mm. And of course, we're looking, and this is where the climate and critical minerals compact come in, we're looking at ways we not compete but complement what's going on. So you, you can draw a thread between the strategic agenda of the United States and the, the strength of the United States as a strategic partner for Australia and the the focus particularly on uh, climate and clean technology under the Biden administration. I mean, it's not as if these are either or um, priorities no. in your view. The, the, what they are doing is they're refashioning supply chains among trusted allies and partners. The, the standout example is what they're trying to do in the critical mineral space. Critical minerals, uh, rare earths and the like, uh, are important for batteries and magnets, important input into electric vehicles. Um, those supply chains are often dominated by one or two producers or one or two countries. Many of them uh, are areas where China has developed a comparative advantage over time. So there's this concentration risk where many of these supply chains focused in that way. And diversifying those supply chains among trusted allies and partners would give greater reliability of supply and particularly in the national security context, greater comfort uh, about where the supplies are coming from and what would happen if there were some sort of interruption or crisis or reduce the capacity to use those resources as a point of leverage in economic trade or political disputes. So it's really that overlay of economics and national security leading to potential changes in supply chains. And much of this is being driven by government spending rather than by trade agreements or changes to market access. So on defence more specifically, though, um, Arthur, look, looking at the priorities that you think would be uppermost in our PM's mind when he goes to Washington, is it all about AUKUS? I mean, to what extent is AUKUS at risk of, if you like, so dominating and overshadowing other parts of the defence relationship that uh, 
we uh, we we lose momentum on those. Am I am I being a little no, bit no, uh, no, no, you, too concerned? Look, you're here. right. I mean, AUKUS is a big piece that we've got to get right. Failure is not an option. Uh, but there's the guided weapons enterprise, which is all about more sort of uh, precision-guided munitions being produced in Australia. That's, again, an area we're cooperating with the US on. The Force Posture Initiatives, which involve cooperation in northern Australia, are also part of that. The US is encouraging us and Japan to work more with them in trilateral uh, contexts and trilateral exercises and, and the like. There's also stuff that we in the US and the Philippines are doing. Um, so there are several dimensions to what we're doing in defence, um, the, the, the issue with AUKUS at the moment is that um, we've got to get legislation through the Congress, which will help us with yeah, the national exemption on tech transfer and information sharing and the like, which will make it much easier then for us and the Americans and the Brits, indeed, the UK, to work together. Um, the, the ultimate vision underlying that legislation is goes back to Senator John McCain and others in the Congress in 2017 who passed legislation to make to declare Australia and the UK part of the national technology industrial base. And the idea of that was ultimately to create a bit of a defence free trade area among allies. Uh, Canada is already part of that base. Uh, one of the things that happened in the sidelines of the G7 meeting in May was the president saying that he would ask the Congress to declare that Australia would be uh, counted for internal purposes under the Defence Production Act, which would go to the, that similar integration of national technology industrial bases. Um, so that is all very important as a basis, not just for how we do AUKUS, but fundamentally how we do defence cooperation in the future. Um, but but you're right, the AUKUS is not the only thing. But it's a big thing that we need to get right and get going as soon as we can off the base basis of this legislation. And, and I would note, uh, not entirely as an aside, that one of the, I think one of the areas of media reporting this week at the time that we're recording has been coverage in some of the Australian newspapers about a, a congressional research service report on um, on the background to AUKUS for, uh, for, for US uh, legislators, I think, to, to weigh up the pros and cons of the decisions they have to make. I think the, the media, one media report just described this as both a, a scathing and also a balanced assessment, which I thought was an interesting juxtaposition. Look, you can't look, be kind of I think both. How did I you read that? Was, I, I think it was a, it was a strong, balanced assessment, no doubt about it. It wasn't written in scathing language, but it was strong. But but that but what it did was to remind people of the challenges that we've undertaken with this enterprise. We've often talked in the past about this being like a moonshot. Mm. And that's what it is. And so uh, so when I glibly say failure is not an option, uh, the reality is now having embarked on this enterprise, we do have to get it done. And what the report did was lay out the sort of issues that have to be addressed on the way through. And those issues do include the capacity of the US to be able to produce more for itself, as well as the way in which we help that process through the injection into the national technology industrial base that we're providing, the three billion or so, and other ways in which we work together to supplement the forces available in the Indo-Pacific. 
And this is specifically about the US submarine capability, just to be clear to listeners, this yeah. is pillar one, pillar one of AUKUS, so the Australian nuclear-powered submarine ambition uh, and the impact that will have on, on America's fleet. Um, and I would also note that the very fact that these conversations are being had so openly in both countries uh, is a sign of that that open society you've spoken about, that um, that that quality, but also uh, that that vulnerability, perhaps that that we have uh, in working through the hard issues. Um, before we we wrap up the conversation, um, Arthur, I wanted to I do actually want to turn back to a point of if you like people to people relations and the. Uh, the presence of Australia's representation on the ground in the United States, because something that was accomplished uh, during your time as ambassador was uh, the uh, moving towards the opening and the building of a, a brand new Australian embassy in Washington. I know that was an ambition over over many years and over several yes. ambassadors, but you were there uh, for the final stages. I just wonder whether you can say something about the significance of that and and really what that presence means for Australia. Well, it, it's located Scott Circle in in um, in the in the middle of one of the major thoroughfares in DC, and um, it's a very modern building. It's got copper sheets on the outside which change colour as the sun progresses through the day. That's meant to evoke the colours of the outback. Uh, internally, it has a very large atrium, so it's a very airy, open sort of space, sort of tries to reflect the nature of Australia as a place, a lot of Indigenous art being put in there because one of the things we did in my time and Kevin is doing now and other ambassadors have done before me is talk about our Indigenous heritage as one of the unique identifiers of us as a country and um, having that Indigenous heritage on display through paintings of various types, through other sorts of memorabilia and and, and artefacts and whatever, I, I think helps to give it an, a real Australia. When you walk in there, Rory, when you finally get a chance to walk in there, it, you know, you will say, this is Australia, I'm home. And uh, I think um, it's a place to be very proud of. The, the function areas downstairs mean that there's a lot of flexibility in what we can do there. And so being able to open the embassy with the Prime Minister present and hopefully a senior member of the administration, I, I, I had hoped at one stage we get the president, might be the president, might be the VP, might be whoever. But the point is that will be a, a time to really celebrate the, all the other elements of the relationship. And, um, and I think, you know, it, it's funny, when I first got here, it was around the time there were bushfires in Australia and everywhere I went, people were talking and asking me about it. They sort of picked up on it and they were concerned about it. Uh, and, and what came through was their concern about a country that they obviously had a lot of affection for, to your point about uh, sentiment. And my first official duty uh, in Washington in February of 2020 was to receive the casket of one of those pilots who'd been killed, a marine pilot in uh, an accident while doing bushfire fighting work uh, in Australia. Uh, and uh, uh, I attended the funeral and uh, met his widow a number of times. Um, and for me, that further reflected, cemented, underlined the people-to-people -people relationship and how we have each other's back. 
Thank you, Arthur, for for not only sharing that story, but also reflecting the you know the confident and contemporary uh, vision that the the new embassy embodies. Um, just in closing, I think interesting to hear a reflection on the importance of having not only that kind of physical establishment, but having an on the ground presence of um, of Australian diplomats very actively engaging with the US system, whether it's with Congress, whether it's with um, influence uh, makers, decision makers around the, the think tanks, uh, the universities, politics, the bureaucracy, business. Is is diplomacy still about that? Is is there any substitute for being on the ground? I'm just interested to know what the impact of COVID and the virtual world and the argument that we don't need to invest so heavily in our diplomatic footprint these days. What's your What's your take? Look, look, uh, look. We adapted to COVID as everybody did, and we changed the way we did things. But um, there is no substitute for the people to people relationships. And in diplomacy, that's important. Uh, I remember before I took up this job, one of my ex-colleagues said to me, oh, you know, you'll be doing all these cocktail parties. You know, it's all sort of, you know, uh, a bit like that. And, and the reality is, you know, so many of the important conversations are the incidental conversations that you have in the margins of other events. And simply by going to different events, building networks, connections, you pick up information. A lot of the job is really grabbing the information from wherever you find it, putting it together and working out what does it mean and what are the implications. And so having people on the ground is important to do that. Having a dedicated congressional branch in, in D.C. is very important because the Congress is a co-equal branch of government and regard themselves as such. So it's important to put the resources into that. Um, having an Austrade presence, even though this is regarded as a mature market, um, is important because there's so much going on here, as I mentioned before. Uh, fantastic opportunities. You know, the, the thing about this country is, you know, you drive a few miles, you suddenly hit another big city. So the scale of what is possible here. And so I encourage not just diplomats to be stationed here, but businesses and others to come over and try their hand. And it's like the old song, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. And, and that's the reality of America. And Frankly, there's still a buzz and excitement to what happens here. Thank you so much, Arthur Sinodinas, for all that uh, that context, that amplification. I think that reflection on the uh, Australian relationship with the United States, uh, the alliance, and more broadly on the eve of the visit by uh, the Australian Prime Minister. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks very much. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.